0: The other night, Laura and I watched The Trapped 13, a documentary about 12 Thai boys and their young coach trapped in a cave for 18 days due to rising water. Not long after realizing they were trapped, they wondered why no one was looking for them. But almost immediately, people were at the cave searching for them. They understood their predicament based on their circumstances. We haven't been helped, so no one is looking for us. But the reality was that within a few days, it had become an international rescue operation with experts from all over the world. The boys who had worked hard to keep hope alive because of their reality Their reality was just not reality. We often define life, God and ourselves, by our circumstances. When things are going well, we say God is good. Life is good. My faith is strong. I can conquer the world. But when things are hard and difficult and painful and we feel surrounded it looks like there's no way out, when darkness seems never-ending, we wonder if life is worth living, we wonder if God has rejected us and turned us away in his anger. Hope seems to rise and fall according to our understanding of our circumstances. And this isn't just a modern-day phenomenon. We see David in the Psalms doing this as well. Psalm 30, verse six, David says, "'As for me, I said in my prosperity, "'I shall never be moved.'" Notice that he declares that his faith is strong, I shall never be moved. When life is going well, when things were going his way, that is, in my prosperity. But notice what he says in Psalm 31, verse 22, when he was trapped in a besieged city surrounded by his enemies. Psalm 31, verse 22, David says, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. That is from God's sight. In his no way out circumstances, David figured God turned his back on him in rejection. Of course, this made sense to David based on his circumstances, which were alarmed at being surrounded by his enemies with no way out. It didn't appear that God was doing anything. God had not shown up yet in the way David wanted. All David saw was death coming to get him. David's interp- interpreted the silence as God's rejection and he concluded I am cut off from your sight. Do you see how David used his circumstances in the first verse as a lens by which he saw God wrongly or which he saw himself wrongly? I shall never be moved. And again, do you see how David used his circumstances as a lens to view God wrongly in the second verse? I'm cut off from his sight. His desperate circumstances brought him to the conclusion that God is the kind of God that would cut him off, hang him out to dry, leave him to fend for himself. You see, Developing a view of ourselves or God based on our circumstances puts us in a very precarious position, one in which we move down the path of despair and away from hope. And we are all prone to do this. In the midst of a sudden calamity or prolonged suffering, have you ever wondered if God was angry at you? if you were suffering his punishment for the wrongs you have done? Have you ever wondered if God had turned his back on you and rejected you? The more we interpret our situation based solely on our our understanding of our circumstances, the farther away from hope we go. Which reminds me of a time when I missed my turn to the campground we were heading to. But I was informed that Google Maps had rerouted us, so we continued on. Soon, Google directed us to turn on a narrow road, which on the map appeared to loop back around to where we wanted to be. But the farther we traveled down this road, the more concerned I got. With the truck and trailer, we were about 50 feet long. And this road soon became one lane with ditches on either side and nowhere to turn around. The further we went, the more distressed I became. We came to some houses, but their driveways were way too short to turn around. One man was outside and just looked at us as we crept by. I had a bad feeling that the path we were on was going to go nowhere good. I should have stopped and turned around when I had the chance, but now I'm in a place where there's no way out. And this is what it's like if we make our circumstances the lens by which we see and define ourselves, God, and the world. So what are we, are, so what are we to do? Our circumstances are our reality, are they not? Yes, they are. And we should not minimize our circumstances. But that so-called reality is incomplete. And we are seeing things with the wrong lens. Let's once again listen to David, this time in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 13, says this, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, where does such confidence come from? How can David be so sure of the outcome? Was he saying this in his prosperity? He wasn't. In fact, he was saying it while surrounded by his foes. So what is David doing differently that gave him such hope? David let God define God. And David let God define the meaning of his circumstances. And David let God define how he relates to him. You see, Our circumstances are an incomplete reality. And any understanding of our situation will be askew from that vantage point. Instead of starting with his circumstances, David starts with God. He is real. He is present. He is powerful. His love never ends. So our understanding that is our path from despair to hope must come from a God at the center reality, which is reality. Our hope and David's confidence was based on the nature and character of God spoken in scripture and proven by God's past faithfulness. Let me read Psalm 27 the first three verses for you and listen to the tone and listen to what David is using to define his circumstances. Psalm 27 verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. This is a declaration of what is true reality. And now the conclusion of whom shall I fear? Verse two. And again, a declaration about God that is true. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Conclusion, of whom shall I be afraid? Now here are the circumstances that David finds himself in, verses two and three. When evildoers assail me to eat eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I shall be confident. Right off the bat, the tone of this Psalm of David is one of confident hope in a context very similar to being in a besieged city. Psalm 31. David was facing evildoers and adversaries, foes, and enemies all around. Look at verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So where does David get such hope? How is he so confident he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? How is he able to view his circumstances rightly without minimizing the danger he is in? The answer? Because he knows God. He knows what kind of God God is. He actively calls to mind that God is his light and his salvation. That God is the stronghold of his life. Defining his situation in light of who God really is, rather than defining God based on what he currently experiences. And that's how we can have such confidence, hope in our cave. Or down our narrow road to nowhere, when things seem hopeless? Now catch this next point. Notice that David's deepest desire was God, not rescue. Did he want to be rescued? Yes. He cries out for it in verses 9 through 12. But that was not David's deepest desire. Look at verse four. One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. More than rescue, more than fixing his situation, more than solving his problem, more than getting the life that he thought he deserved, David wanted God. To see God, to see his beauty, that is, the sum of all his infinite perfections and to inquire about them. Perhaps David would ask, just how far does your love go? And then to hear God say, all the way down into your darkest cave, all the way along your dead end road, to every moment of your unbearable grief, In every instance of your crippling pain, you are not forgotten. I have not left you behind. I'm not angry at you. Your circumstances may tell you something different, but don't listen to them. Listen to me. My love never ends. So David ends by telling himself these hopeful words in verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. With God, a God with God and a God-defined life, we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Heavenly Father, we can be so overwhelmed with our circumstances that we miss you or we see you askew. Teach us, help us to see and gain confidence in who you are as our light and our salvation from at this moment and at every moment of our life so that we have hope to see the goodness of God in the land of the living
1: answer part two of the message as we're talking about hope today I, I had a question to kind of get get it started I wondered when was a time you felt just overwhelmed by hope i'm not talking about like the hope you feel when you you pulled in the parking lot and you're like hoping for a good parking spot i'm talking about like where you felt it in your body you felt the emotions it was like a childlike hope experience and i started thinking to myself like when when have i felt that and I, i actually went back to a childhood story to feel this childlike hope and um well has anyone here seen like the goonies Okay, it's like this classic, uh, I think like 1980s uh, movie about kids who uh, discover a, an ancient like uh, the pirate treasure map in their attic. They go on this adventure of hope, excitement, adventure. They're, they're looking for this treasure. And before my parents ever made me watch the movie, um, that was for you guys, uh, I actually uh, lived the Goonies before I ever saw the Goonies. See, one summer I was uh, staying with my brother. We were staying at my grandparents' house, uh, my grandfather and his lake house. And he's having us kind of do some chores and he's having us clean out his garage. Now he's doing that with a purpose in mind because he's hid something there. He's planned out a whole day. So we're cleaning it out and we come across this strange painting, basically took it from the movie. And we see on the back this old map of Canyon Lake where he lives. It's like an original map. He actually had it. And on there, we can see some writing and it takes some time for us because we're young, but we notice it's a treasure map. And so we go and we show it to my grandfather and we're we're kind of filled with excitement. We're like, I don't know what this is. I'm a kid and I just found an actual treasure map. And my grandfather really like took an acting class or something because he sold it. He was telling us how it's his great-great-grandfather's treasure was buried here. And the reason he owns a house here is because the map was lost and he's been trying to find it for years. And now we have the chance, finally. Um, You know, we're kids. We're just, we're dying. We're like, we're going crazy, and so he takes us on this adventure, and we're just excited. We're going, and it's like well thought out. We're in boats. We're in kayaks. We're like going to islands and beaches and digging stuff up, but it wasn't just like a feeling of hope that was kind of like for fun. He paid it off at the end. He he, he gave us confidence in, in what to hope in, See at the very end we get to the spot and when we dig up this thing and in there was an actual like treasure chest and in it was real jewels and money that should not have been given to a kid of our age but there was this excitement of it's a hope that had been fulfilled We just looked at Psalm 27 we're looking at David and he's expressing this hope in the Lord and you see him say this pivotal phrase where he, he says I know I'm confident In this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And it's a pivotal statement. And in that statement, David is really saying, God, I know you're good. I know you're faithful. And I know you are working right now. And because of that, I'm going to actively hope in you. I'm not just going to wait out the clock. I'm not just going to wait till I die to know that you're going to fulfill what you've done. I know I'm going to see it now david puts his hope in the lord because he knew he would see god's goodness working in his life and working the lives to come so if you're if you're somewhat new you just joined us we've been doing this series the lights before christmas and we're kind of playing off it again so if you have your bibles turn to luke 2 what we've been doing is looking at an old testament passage and then kind of playing it out again in the new testament where, you, where you're then seeing it fulfilled we're looking at these instances um, sort of a christ before and and i think what we see here is actually uh, another example, a fulfillment, but also another example of this confidence of the hope someone is putting in Christ. This phrase, I I remain confident because I will see the goodness. I remain confident, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I think we see a very real example of this happen in Luke 2. In Luke 2, just after Jesus' birth, we're introduced to two people who this literally happens to. they finally get to see the hope they've waited so long for. It's in Luke 2, uh, starting in verse 25. Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to the temple. Um, we get a little shout out two turtle doves, but don't get distracted by that because in there, what we really want to see is there's two characters as they're taking uh, Jesus to the temple. The first one we're going to see right here in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus uh, to do for him what was the custom the law had required, Simeon took him in his arms and, praising God, said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the gentiles and the glory for your people israel first person we see as they're doing this uh, is simeon we we see a few things about simeon about his character he's righteous he's devout Uh, he he clearly has a special connection with the holy spirit he's going to the temple. But I think we see something interesting about Simeon's hope. So as we're talking about hope, I kind of want to ask this question. What does your hope look like, right? When was the time you are overwhelmed by hope? What does your hope look like? Here's what I think we see with Simeon's hope. Simeon, he hoped for the things that God hoped for. Simeon hoped for the things that God hoped for. It says that he was eagerly waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, He was waiting basically for a time of comfort. He was waiting for a time of peace, and more than anything, he is waiting for a time of renewal for Israel, for God's people. He was hoping for that also through the coming of the Messiah. He's hoping for something uh, God hopes for, right? He's hoping uh, that goes with that. And, and, and he has a reason to be confident in this, right? He says that he's not going to die until he sees it. And then enter Jesus, something he had been hoping for so long for. He's now holding in his arms, he, he, he's uh seeing the salvation jesus the renewal and especially for simeon i think he sees peace he says you can dismiss your servant there's this exhale that's coming there's no more waiting to be done but i think what's also interesting in this passage is not just that simeon hoped for the things that god hoped for but it, it's that god's goodness i think was greater than what even Simeon hoped for. It was bigger. It was greater than what Simeon hoped for. Simeon hoped for the consolation of Israel, but you see right when he experiences Jesus, he doesn't just stop there. He notices it's bigger. He wants peace. He wants renewal for Israel, but Jesus wasn't just coming for Israel. He was coming for everyone. He was coming to bring life and peace to all, and Simeon realizes that right away. He doesn't have to wait for the rest of the story. Simeon notices in verse 32, it's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. It's bigger than what I wanted for. I was hoping just for this and, and you're doing even more, God. This goodness that, that Simeon experiences is it, bigger and greater than he ever hoped for. And bigger than he imagined. The story doesn't stop there. We've got to keep moving. Because there's one, another character that comes in right afterwards. In verse 36, it says, There also was a prophet, Anna. The daughter of Penuel and of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her seven—oh, sorry, she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. That's a long time. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. She was dedicated. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of jerusalem so we get this kind of played out this goodness uh, of god played out again in real time uh, of seeing him in the land of the living happens with anna but i think what's so interesting what happens with anna is how she responds also to it happening right How, how she responds to her hope being fulfilled uh, Simeon sees it. He's hoping for the things God hopes for, and all of a sudden he sees it, and it's, it's bigger, it's greater than he ever imagined. Anna's been hoping for a very long time, and all of a sudden she sees it and experiences, and what does she do? She wants others to see his goodness. She doesn't respond exactly in the same way as Simeon with, with a word to the parents, um, but she responds by, by telling everyone else around. She wants others to see God's goodness. And I think we need more of Anna today. I started thinking about this, this idea of seeing the goodness of God in the land of the living, and I think, why do we, why do we maybe not see this or experience it as much? But I think perhaps one reason is uh, we're too distracted, right, or we're not looking for it. And then I began to think about the other people that were there. There were other people at the temple Right? The story didn't just happen with, like, a select group that was there and, like, everything else was empty. It was a normal day. It was a busy, busy uh, temple. And what would have happened if Anna said nothing? Like, those people were just kind of going about their business. They were just doing what they were there to do. They, They didn't know about Jesus. They weren't kind of looking for him. They were just kind of living their life. They would have missed him, even though the one they were waiting for was, like, in arm's reach. but I don't think Anna lets that happen. So I began to wonder, what would would it look like if we helped each other see the goodness of God? Not just we, but we. Like, what would the world look like? What would things be like? What would it look like if we helped each other see God's goodness? And what would it look like if we did it not in like a condescending or a judgmental way, something that turns people off, of Jesus, but in a way that Anna does it, where she experienced something that she had hoped her whole life for, and she just can't contain herself. She's overwhelmed. She feels it in her whole being. It's like that childlike hope. She's excited. She's found the buried treasure. She don't want to keep it to herself. She could have just had a private moment with the parents and been on her way, but she shared it with everyone around her. What would it look like if we had more Annas that looked for people with genuine love? Knowing the goodness and the hope and not keeping it to themselves. So here's kind of my last little question to ask is, how do we see the goodness of God in the land of the living? Well, What does your hope look like? What does your hope look like? Are you hoping in something you can be confident in? What does your hope look like? Are you hoping in the Lord, as David was calling us to? Are you hoping like Simeon for the things that God hopes for? right? It's not just a parking spot or it's not just something for me. Are you hoping for a bigger picture? Are you hoping for the things that God is hoping for, joining in his mission, and his kingdom? Things that can actually overwhelm us. And then are you, are you willing to share that? Are you willing to help others see the hope as well, like Anna? As we start the new year, let's lean into this challenge and look for the goodness of God. Right now, in the land of living, not wait out the clock, not just hope for that future thing, but look for it in the here and now. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for just being our hope. God for, for being something greater too. So pray in this new year that we can see your goodness more and more. We cannot be distracted, but we can be looking for the ways. Uh, that you are moving, you are working, we can be confident in you, God, put our hope in something that's common, so we trust you, we love you, we hope things you hope for, and we pray in your name, amen.
2: As we have explored the lights before Christmas this year, we have explored, well, we started in Exodus 16 when we looked at manna and how that Prefigured the bread of life that would come we looked at um i have it written down but i don't remember now because they were so striking we, we i'm i'm bad today we we picked some themes some some threads from the old testament and how they wove their way through the old testament and and inform and and deepen our understanding of the coming of christ we looked at the birth of Moses. We looked at Moses requesting to be and see the very presence of God. We looked at um, David and his promise that he received from God, uh, that there was a king who was coming. And this morning, the, the concept that, that this goodness of the Lord in the land of the living was seen by, by Anna and Simeon when they came to dedicate Christ at the temple. And so we've, we've been looking at these themes. I even have a theme for next Christmas. You ready? What, what, are, what, are, what is Christmas known for? Angels, right? So why don't we look at angels and what they announced and the mercy and their purpose in the Old Testament so that we can understand when they show up to the shepherds kind of the context of what's really going on. We're going to do that maybe. There's a lot of water under the bridge between now and then, but eh, maybe we'll do that next year. So you decorators can think we'll have an angelic scene. I don't know how you do that. But we've been looking at how the Old Testament shines a light through its stories, through its pages on the one who is coming. And we will conclude the series and launch a new year around the table of the Lord. The one to whom all of those texts speak. And so I thought as we prepared for these moments, it would be fitting to turn to a passage in the New Testament which states clearly who this baby was. Let's turn to Revelation 5. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we have a scene, probably a scene we ought to look at every year to remind ourselves of the big picture. Revelation 5, verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. When Jesus came and he died, his death had a definite purpose. Because the blood of Christ purchased a whole host of men and women from every tribe, from every neighborhood, every block, everywhere, every province and city and village. He went up and down the street, I'm gonna pay the price. And he will not be defeated, put any of that Out of your mind because the battle has already been won but notice this the glory of heaven is Jesus Christ whose victory is celebrated without end John saw him in the center of the throne Jesus is the focal point of heaven he is the center of all the attention and without him there is no heaven and without him, none of us would have a chance to experience that place. As the hymn says, we've, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Yes, we'll see our loved ones in heaven. And yes, the redeemed of all ages will be there. But the central fact is not going to be reminiscing about the good old days on earth. The central fact will be that Jesus himself is there. The lamb slain on our behalf. The one whose birth we have just celebrated. I think if we came back to a text like this more often we'd be less prone to complain. We would be less tempted to give up, less inclined just to dabble in the things of the world because the glory of heaven is Jesus. That's what all of these themes, so woven in the text, shout. And as the ages roll on, we we will never tire of singing his praises we will still see him bearing the marks of the price for our sin. And on that day, the redeemed saints of God will sing with a united voice, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. and crown That's a crown. And crown him Lord of all. That's who we celebrate this morning. The nuances of the Old Testament account for him coming to fruition in this vision of the Savior. And the Lord's table, it is a somber, it is a a sacred moment, but you know, it is also a celebratory event. As we remember the King of Kings, what he has done for us, the joy that we have in knowing him, in walking with him, and that we'll be with Him someday as the center point of all of existence for all eternity. You have, hopefully, one of these things. If you don't, we have some ushers who would just love to bring one to you. You don't even have to get up. Just kind of do something. Anybody? Because this morning we want to remember Him. We want to remember in these moments as we begin a new year, that He is the center of all that we do. Not me, not you, not lights, not decorations. It's all about Him. It's all about the Savior today. Because the baby whose birth we celebrated, the significance of his life comes when he gave that life for you and me. Paul writes this. You can, I always feel like you're doing it upside down. Tear off the side with the bread on the top, the short side. You'll be ready. Let me read the text as we contemplate the Savior. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A very simple element, every culture, every place has whatever they have for bread. The staple of life. Jesus says, that's what I have become for you. Broken, without the body from the manger, It wouldn't have done any good. He had a body like ours, and it was broken. And today we want to remember that and to celebrate what he did for us. Let's eat it together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, the last of the the cups of the Passover, and said that this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We won't do this after we see him face to face. You won't forget him at that point because we will be like him because we will see him as he is. This morning we have this element, this this juice to remind us that it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled on our account because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. He paid the price for our sin. Let's give thanks and then we'll drink it together. Father, we thank you this morning for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. For without your blood, there would be no forgiveness. That as you hung on the cross, your anger at my sin, your anger at our sin, at, at the injustice of this world, was poured out and born in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It is hard for us to imagine that the baby we've just celebrated faces the anger of God because of what we have done. So we worship you this morning, O Lamb of God. And we thank you for your precious blood that was spilled outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem on our behalf. Let's drink it and remember him too.